It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, June 16th, 2009. Oh boy, have we got a lot to do today. I'm beginning to think that I've become like the energizer bunny of uh, radio, or Christian discernment radio, Christian radio in general. Too much to do, too much to, I, I can't to say no to everything, I, oh man. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in, you are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically to get you to think critically, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and to help you correctly discern law and gospel. Why is that important? Well, because the law doesn't save. The gospel does. All right, we got just looking at the list here today. I'm excited about today's program, by the way. I'm going to do something we haven't done before. We're going to breathe some life into a historical sermon yeah, that's right. Uh, today's sermon review, I'm getting. I'm talking about the end of the program or the last part of the program first. Today we're going to be reviewing a sermon by Martin Luther. <laughs> yeah. Now you're thinking, well, yeah, Martin Luther doesn't have a website. He doesn't even have an active church at the moment. He's been dead for a long time. Okay, if you would allow me to put it this way, um, I'm going to be reading, preaching, if you would, a sermon by Martin Luther. The name of the sermon is The Twofold Use of Law and Gospel. The sermon itself is almost an hour long. I kid you not. I will try to interrupt myself as little as possible and so that you know th- that there's a distinction between the sermon itself and any commentary that I might give. What I will be doing, what I did is I recorded the sermon earlier today and uh, I put it through an effects uh, effects loop on my uh, on our soundboard here so that it sounds like I'm preaching in some kind of an echoey cathedral kind of thing. Yeah, so I'll be ascending to the Fighting for the Faith cathedral uh, pulpit and we'll be pre- preaching a sermon to you uh, which was originally delivered by Herr Luther. And it's a fantastic sermon. In fact, it's the perfect anti- antidote Anecdote, yeah, antidote to the poison that we heard yesterday by Mark Beeson on the God is waiting on you sermon. That was a perfectly wretched sermon for so many reasons, but it was all law and no gospel. And this guy completely misses the whole point of scripture. And um, Luther's sermon here on the twofold use of law and gospel, this sermon just nails it. It, That's the best way I can describe it. So I'm really excited about the end of the program. So you're going to want to stay tuned for hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, you'll you'll hear Luther and uh, my attempt at uh, Christian preaching. We won't comment on my delivery. (laughs) Okay, today's program, I've got an email here regarding Rob Bell. We're going to talk about that. We've got persecution news that we're going to be talking about today. A teacher who was sacked for having a Bible on his desk in Ohio is suing the school district that hired him or fired him. 
A uh, Christian man is raped, murdered, and uh, for refusing to convert to Islam. This occurred in Pakistan. And then we've got news out of the out of Australia. Sex workers are sto- have stormed a Salvation Army Red Shield appeal launch. Uh, sex workers. I guess that's the new politically term, politically correct term for prostitutes. And uh, we're going to be reading a really bad devotional that was posted on the Christian Post called Self Belief. And then, you know, later in the program, we're going to be doing our sermon review, and that's uh, of a Martin Luther sermon entitled uh, The Twofold Use of Law and Gospel. So we've got lots to do today. And uh, if you have the ability to sit down, then do so. If not, if you're working out, exercising, I understand that that's okay, too. We understand that there are people who are active while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Um, whatever is you have the ability to do, whether relax or exercise, workout, or if you're listening at work or on your commute, and sit down and enjoy yourself. Just allow yourself to roll with the, the, the presentation today here. Lots to do. All right. Got an email from a gentleman by the name of Brian. I don't know where Brian is from, but he says, uh, uh, Chris, I have been listening to your critique of Rob Bell. Now, uh, my immediate question would be, well, we've critiqued Rob Bell more than once, three to four times that I'm aware of, at, uh, for, just from my memory. But then again, you know, I'm getting older and can hide my own Easter egg, so we may have done more. But I, it's no, it's at least three, potentially four times we've critiqued Rob Bell. He says, I don't know the history of your dispute with him, but I'm curious why you're so vehemently opposed to him. If we are both members of Christ's body, why do we attack one another? Maybe Rob Bell isn't perfect. Maybe you aren't perfect. But aren't you both trying to point people to Christ, his death, and the salvation offered through his death and resurrection? I've heard a lot. So do you? So you don't have to tell me how Rob Bell is wrong. What I'm curious about is why you are right to cut down a fellow believer. Well, Brian, here, let's let's do a little bit of biblical work here and just make a point. And... Um, I'm not attacking Rob Bell personally. A personal attack of of Rob Bell would go something like this. I think Rob Bell is a gunky head, and his mom dresses dresses him funny, and I don't like his glasses. I think his taste in glasses is just bleh. See, that's a personal attack. Okay, I don't engage in personal attacks here. What I do do is compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, let me give you a little bit of biblical backing for why this is important. I understand that Rob Bell says that he's a Christian brother. However, I do not, based upon my reading of Rob Bell's books, my listening to his sermons, um, and following him in the news, I do not believe that he is pointing people to the same gospel that I'm pointing people to. I believe Rob Bell preaches and teaches a different gospel. He twists the word of God, he's redefined it, rethunk it, and he's an emergent. He is not preaching the same gospel that I preach. Now, that leads to an issue. We can both be wrong, but both of us cannot be right. Okay, so um, let me <clears throat> let me just uh, read to you here. Um, couple of things here. Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, uh, t- 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Uh, the job of, you know, 
Christian teachers, if you would, pastors and teachers alike, is to preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. The Christian ministry doesn't just involve building up. At times, it involves tearing down. Let me read you another passage from Titus. We read, um, starting at verse 7, An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospital, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Okay, so understand this. The job of Christian teachers and pastors is to not only proclaim the word of God, but where there is false doctrine, to silence those who are preaching false doctrine. And... I do not think I'm going out on a limb here at all, and I will stand by this assessment. Rob Bell teaches a different gospel, and the things that he says are not in accord with what Scripture teaches. He preaches a gospel of works righteousness based upon a social gospel. He has women preaching from his pulpit who preach that the Holy Spirit is feminine, and there's just problems galore in what Rob Bell is teaching. Rob Bell, in his book Velvet Elvis, basically says that um, if Jesus Christ wasn't born of the Virgin Mary but actually had a, a biological father, that Christianity would still be the best way to live on the planet. And that's a bunch of bunk, and that's not the Christian faith. So what I do is I attack the false doctrine being taught by Rob Bell. And I correct it, and I compare it to the Word of God. Now... The thing is, Rob Bell's the one who teaches it, and I do not believe that the way a Christian is supposed to handle false teaching is to just correct the doctrine without letting on as to who it is that's teaching it. Uh, that's like basically warning people, you know, there's a bridge out ahead, but I'm not going to tell you which bridge, and I'm not going to tell you how far away it is, but be sure to watch out for that, that bridge that's out, because I don't want you to fall over it. Yeah. That's not how we work here. So do I consider Rob Bell to be a fellow Christian? Well, based upon the, the gospel that he preaches, I have serious doubts. That's where it's at. So I'm not attacking him personally. I'm correcting his doctrine and basically doing my best to compare what he says to the word of God, to take his doctrine captive, make it obedient to Christ, and to silence him so that he'll preach the right gospel, to repent and to preach the correct gospel, not the one that he's preaching. So there you have it. All right. Moving along here to our news, I have to pull up our vintage news music. This is a segment on persecution news around the world. Um, from Fox News, Christian man raped, murdered uh, for refusing to convert to Islam, his family says. Yeah, that's right. Uh, chalk this up to more news from that uh, wonderful religion of peace known as Islam. 
a, a young this is written by Nora Zimmet from foxnews.com it's a, a young christian man was raped and brutally murdered in pakistan for refusing to convert to islam and police are doing nothing about it the victim's brother and minister told foxnews.com pakistani police reportedly found the body of tariq lito Mas, uh, masi uh, Masi Gowry, I think these names, a 28-year-old university student in uh, Sargadha, Pakistan, lying dead in a canal outside of a rural village in Punjab province on May 15th. He had been raped and stabbed at least five times. Now, I just want to point something out here. Um, Islam, that religion of peace, um, is very very much against um, homosexuality. Wouldn't a Muslim man who engaged in raping a Christian man be guilty of engaging in homosexual behavior? Yeah, I think so. I think that kind of shows the hypocrisy here of the religion of peace. Um, the family believes Lito Gowry was murdered by uh, the brothers of his Muslim girlfriend, uh, Shazi Chima, after they found him in a compromising sexual position with their sister. The Reverend Harun Bhatti, a Christian clergyman in the village and a friend of the Gowry family, said Chima's three brothers came to Lito Gowry's house on May 11th and gave him an ultimatum, marry their sister uh, and convert to Islam. Gowry agreed to the marriage but refused to accept Islam. And the brothers kidnapped him at gunpoint and drove him to a remote farmhouse where they tortured, raped, and murdered him. Now, wouldn't rape by another man count as a um, compromising sexual act? On that farmhouse, four days there, we all, Christians and family, were searching for him. The Reverend Bhatti said, I was with him. I was searching for him. After police discovered the body, Gowry's death was declared a homicide, and the family filed paperwork with the Atta Shahid police station in their small village, Atta 44SB. But the Gowry's brothers said that uh, police have still not arrested the alleged killers, killers and have refused to meet with his family. Apparently, the, uh, the the members of the religion of peace, if they are in law enforcement, are not interested in in civil justice uh, when um, one of their own is guilty of murder. Uh, but one embassy official questioned the truth of the report. On the face of it, this appears to be exaggerated, said Pakistani official who asked not to be named. This does not happen over there, really. Okay. So there you have it. A uh, Christian man was uh, murdered and raped. Uh, because he wouldn't convert to Islam. Again, we just chalk that up to the uh, examples of the great love to be found in that wonderful world religion known as the religion of peace, a.k.a. Islam. Um, let's see here. Uh, this is from uh, the Christian Telegraph. Teacher sacked for Bible on desk Sue's school district. An eighth grade public school teacher who says he was fired for refusing to remove his personal Bible from his classroom desk is now taking the school district to federal court, suing them for defamation and breach of contract, reports Peter J. Smith, LifeSiteNews.com. 
John Freshwater, a teacher with over 24 years of experience, filed a lawsuit Tuesday with the U.S. District Court from the Southern District of Ohio against the Mount Vernon City School District Board of Education and its officials for terminating his contract. He accuses the district of violating Ohio public policy and perpetrating religious harassment, retaliation, conspiracy, and defamation against him. Last June, the Mount Vernon School Board voted unanimously to fire Freshwater from his teaching position based on the report of an independent investigator which found that Freshwater had, quote, burnt what they determined to be a cross and not an X, as Freshwater claimed, on a student's arm doing a routine, a routine science experiment, taught religion in the classroom, refused to remove religious articles from the classroom and prayed at a Federation of Christian Athletes meeting, which is a Christian student-led group Freshwater advises. However, the event that evidently uh, precipitated the school board's investigation against Freshwater was his refusal to remove his personal Bible from his classroom desk, uh, the only significant allegation Freshwater has admitted to. According to Freshwater's pastor, Reverend Don Mataliak of the Trinity Assembly of God Church, Freshwater's conflict with the school began after he broached the topic of intelligent design in the classroom after teaching the theory of evolution. Since then, there have been people who have had it out for John, uh, Mataliak told LifeSiteNews.com in an interview earlier last year. While the Bible may have been the immediate catalyst for Freshwater's firing, the investigative report done on Freshwater indicates that any expression of Freshwater's religion in the public school, including bringing other points of view to facilitate discussion on his teaching of biological evolution, were the primary concern of the school administrators. The investigators, Freshwater's uh, Freshwater report, revealed that Freshwater would encourage critical analysis and debate on Darwinian evolution and hand out supplemental materials on intelligent design and evolution. Freshwater had also disputed a Time magazine article that claimed that scientists had found a, quote, gay gene and instead emphasized to his students that homosexual behavior was a matter of personal choice and a sin, according to the Bible. In response to a ninth grade questionnaire given to incoming students, a number remarked that evolution was one of their favorite topics in science due to the even-handed approach taught by Freshwater in the eighth grade. One student wrote that evolution was the favorite subject that he was that, that was covered because we learned about it and how it can or can't be true and got both sides of the story. Another said evolution because we always had debates about it. However, because students entering in the ninth grade were challenging the positions of the teachers on evolution, the teachers complained that they had to reteach evolution to students as an incontrovertible, incontrovertible fact. The report cited one teacher who complained that freshwater was misteaching science, i.e. that there are some sort of difference between facts and hypotheses, so that she had to start every year reteaching students how science actually works. According to Christian Educators Association International, public school staffers in Mount Vernon were ordered this school year by school administrators to remove all religious material and displays from their rooms. 
Quote, I am pleased to see public school teachers like uh, John Freshwater willing to go outside his comfort zone and fight for the religious freedoms our forefathers guaranteed us through the U.S. Constitution, said Finn Larson about the case, uh, CEIA's executive director. It's imperative that all Christian educators, students, and parents be willing to step forward and insist on their rights, or those rights will slowly be forfeited. Um, there you have it. Just by way of comment, um, I don't have a problem with any teacher who wants to keep a Bible on his desk. And it's absolutely correct and right and salutary that when it comes to the theory of evolution, that in the name of science, that there be debate on this issue and that all sides be considered because the evidence does not suggest that evolution is an incontrovertible fact. But what's happened here? Well, in the Mount Vernon School District, uh, they've basically taken the side that you will toe the line and you will indoctrinate the students at Mount, in Mount Vernon School District according to what we say, and there will be no deviation and no discussion of the matter or else. My hope is that uh, Freshwater is successful in his lawsuit and that those folks in Ohio learn a lesson. Uh, oh man, just got to tell you. All right, one of the more stranger news stories here. We read from uh, the, Courier, uh, the Courier Mail in Australia, sex workers storm Salvation Army Red Shield appeal launch. This one's all kinds of fun as far as the story goes. Um, the Salvation Army has apologized over an advertisement published in newspapers on Friday, which has outraged sex workers. Uh, okay, I got a question for our uh, Australian listening audience. Um, is prostitution legal in, uh, in Australia? I, I, no, I asked the question because um, this news story... I don't think it is. I, I'm pretty sure it. it I, I'm pretty sure that prostitution is not legal in Australia. I may be wrong. You just never know in this day and age. But, uh, but let me see if I have this right. This news agency, the uh, Courier Mail uh, in Australia, is not naming them prostitutes, but sex workers. Um, do they have a union? Do these sex workers, uh, do they have a union, health benefits, uh, you know, things like that? I mean, sex worker just sounds, it makes it sounds like, you know, hey, you know, uh, these are people who uh, who have a legitimate uh, vocation and that vocation involves um, sex for money, you know, and, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of skill. It just, it's, this is something that anybody can do. Um, and these are, you know... <clears throat> Again, I'm, I'm taking issue with the term sex worker here. Um, the uh, the Salvation Army band trumpeted, uh, trumpeted sex workers with placards and red umbrellas stormed the launch of its Red Shield appeal, uh, that campaign in Sydney. The Australian Sex Workers Association, the Scarlet Alliance. Australian Sex Workers Association. Maybe they do have a union. Um, the Australian Sex Workers Association, the Scarlet Alliance, was protesting over the Salvos ad in newspapers that drew attention to its rehabilitation efforts. 
The ad told the story of Rick, saying to get Rick out of prostitution, we had to resort to smuggling. Scarlet Alliance President Alina Jeffries said the Salvation Army had exploited the sex worker involved and was encouraging community discrimination against legal prostitution. Oh, boy. Okay, I, I'm, I'm, you know, basically the Salvation Army advertisement told of a guy named Rick that they smuggled out of prostitution. From the Christian worldview, getting somebody out of prostitution is a good thing. Okay, um, the sex trade and uh, in human trafficking that goes along with the sex trade is not an upstanding lifestyle, is not an upstanding vocation. There are literally millions of women enslaved in in the sex industry, and they're not sex workers, they're sex slaves. Yeah, this is ridiculous. So apparently the Salvation Army has stepped on the toes of these sex workers, and, uh, and is they basically are being accused of exploiting this guy's story, the story of having to smuggle him out of prostitution, and um, encouraging community discrimination against legal prostitution. So if you believe that, uh, let's see, prostitution would be um, a, a negative thing in society, it would not be a, a, a positive thing, and, and, uh, and prostitution would be a sin for which people need to repent and or be freed from, um, so now in Australia, if that's your view, you may be considered guilty of discriminating against legal prostitution. The South quote, the Salvation Army has shamefully chosen to capitalize on stigma against sex workers in its advertising for their shield door knock. Uh, Miss Jeffries, who was allowed to speak at the event, said before the apology was announced, Quote, this is a blatant use of the general community's unease and misinformation about the sex industry and will further sex workers stigmatize uh, will further will further sex workers stigmatize sex workers. That's a bad sentence, but uh, so uh, stigmatizing sex workers. So let me see if I have this straight. We now live in a day and age if you call homosexuality a sin, uh, that's that it could have you running afoul of the laws in Great Britain. And if you claim that um, prostitution is sinful and something that people need to be freed from, uh, released from, that that's now you may be guilty of stigmatizing sex workers. I, you know, just by way of question, sex worker. I mean, again, it just makes it sound like it's just okay. I mean, which of you parents out there would be proud to say, you know, my daughter is a sex worker? I mean, should there be college courses that teach um, people how to ascend the ranks in, in the sex worker industry? I mean, if we, if we don't want to stigmatize it, I mean, then we should embrace it and be teaching it, right? What is going on in Australia to where... Um, they want to embrace prostitution and make it sound like being a sex worker is a legitimate vocation for any person, yet alone my own daughters. Oh, boy. All right. Let's see here. Um, okay. Um, 
Another member of the Scarlet Alliance, Kelly, said the Salvation Army failed to help sex workers when they needed help, and Rick's story was akin to kidnapping. The majority of sex workers do not need rescuing, and the Salvation Army has not assisted sex workers when we have needed support. Instead, they are using us to get donations, she said. Salvation Army spokesman Major General Philip Maxwell, salute when you hear that, said the organization apologized for the offense caused and had withdrawn the advertisement. The protest overshadowed the launch of the Army's annual doorknock appeal supported by General Peter Cosgrove and former world motorbike racing champion Mick Doohan. The Salvation Army says that one million Australians find themselves in crisis each year and turn to a charity organization. At the launch, Major Brad House urged people to donate any money they could during the appeal. Quote, we rely on the public to help us. Uh, the gaps are growing. There's a lot of uncertainty out there, he said. Every donation makes a huge difference. General Cosgrove said that the Salvation Army played an essential part in helping those in need in Australian society. Quote, you know when times are tough, look around and there you will, you'll see the salvo. That will be the Salvation Army. And it's not just uh, through particular incidents, floods, uh, cyclones, mining disasters, etc. They live among the community and when the community are in dire need, the salvos will be there with them. To cap off the launch, a Beaconsfield mine collapse uh, survivors Todd Russell and Brant Webb sang happy birthday to the Ice House frontman Eva Davies who has experienced firsthand the work of the Salvation Army. The doorknock appeal begins on Saturday. So there you have it. The Salvation Army is uh, launching into a campaign to help raise funds, and they got lambasted because they told the story of somebody that they helped out of being a sex worker. They're not prostitutes anymore. They're sex workers. The prostitution should be legal, and uh, we should all... Be excited that if our daughter decides upon such a noble career as being a, quote, sex worker. And how do we combat this, by the way? Um, as Christians, we only have one weapon. The one thing that we've been given to do, and that is to go into the world and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Because really our, our fight is not against prostitution. Our fight is to get the message of the gospel to prostitutes so that Christ will grant them repentance and forgiveness of sins for what they've done, including the sin of uh, fornication, adultery, prostitution, whatever you want to call it, because there were plenty of former prostitutes who listened to and received the forgiveness of sins when Jesus was alive here on earth. All right, we're up on our first break. When we come back, we're going to be listening, or I'm going to be critiquing a uh, a devotional uh, from the Christian Post called, entitled Self-Belief. And, uh, and then we're going to get into our sermon review. Hopefully we can start it uh, before we get, launch into the second hour because our sermon is really long. <laughs> It's like really long, but don't let that deter you. It's a it's a fantastic sermon and one that you definitely want to hear. If you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. In fact, you can look me up there. Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, my name there, by the way, is Pirate Christian. You can follow me and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. We'll be right back. 
good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's, no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? 
Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. A little long in that first segment. Oh, boy. Gift of gab. I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's right. This program is your program, and if you want to continue hearing this program, we... Need you to support us. And uh, the way you do so is by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here, uh, just so you know what's coming up here, we're going to talk about this uh, devotional, I, I don't, this article in uh, the Christian Post, which, by the way, I don't think this is Christian, and we'll talk about that, and uh, it's called Self-Belief, and uh, and then we're going to dive into a review of a sermon uh, by Martin Luther on the twofold use of law and gospel, and uh, by way of weird Twilight Zone kind of thing, I had to preach the sermon before I can del- uh, review the sermon, so you're going to hear me preaching, which is kind of weird. Um, so it's going to be strange because I'm going to be interrupting myself if I comment. And uh, I think what I'll do is I'll make the sermon available by itself as a separate audio file at the on the podcast. For those of you who subscribe via iTunes, uh, you'll be able to get the, uh, the sermon alone 
And uh, if you want, that way you don't have to hear me commenting on what sounds like me preaching. Anyway, Twilight Zone kind of stuff there. Okay, this is from the Christian Post. The name of the article or devotional is entitled Self-Belief. Now, this kind of leads to an interesting point, just right off the bat. Faith always has an object. Belief always has an object, okay? For instance, if I get into an airplane and I expect that the airplane is going to take me from Indianapolis back to Southern California, okay, then I believe and I have faith in that jet and I have faith in the pilots and I have faith in the airline uh, that I purchased the tickets from that they're going to successfully get me to where I'm going. Uh, By the way, uh, in that particular scenario, there's no belief in myself whatsoever that matters for a hill of beans, okay? Whether or not I believe in myself has no bearing on whether or not the airline that that I purchased the ticket from is going to be able to get me from uh, Indianapolis back to Southern California. It has no bearing on whether or not the pilot piloting the aircraft is going to be capable of piloting it in a safe way to get me back from Indianapolis to Southern California. None of that has any bearing on it, okay? But so self-belief, we say, just doesn't play into it, okay? The same thing happens in the Christian faith, okay? Faith has an object. And if the object of your faith is yourself... Uh, there is a major problem, okay? Um, because you're thrown back on yourself, and ultimately, faith in yourself means that you yourself are responsible for um, making sure that you are you have the righteousness necessary to stand before a holy and just God, because you believe in yourself. The Christian faith doesn't encourage you whatsoever to believe in yourself. Instead, it, it, the Christian faith encourages you to consider yourself to be a walking dead man. For those of you women out there listening, walking dead woman would be just fine. However, I'm using the broader form of English here, and I'm generally not politically correct. But you get what I'm saying. Okay, We are told to deny ourselves, to not believe in ourselves, to repent, because we're the problem, and believe the good news that Jesus Christ has done it all for us. He's the one who's lived the law perfectly. He's the one who died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. His death on the cross propitiates God's wrath. He was pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities, that kind of, you know, crucified for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. Jesus Christ is the one who does it all. We are encouraged to not believe in ourselves, uh, but to instead believe in Jesus Christ. See, the, the title of the story, of this, this devotional, already is problematic. Why? Self-belief is not Christian belief at all. Self-belief is the problem. And in fact, if you think back to, I think it's Isaiah chapter 14, uh, Satan had a self-belief problem. Let me pull that up, by the way. Isaiah 14... Oh, Roseboro, got to do a verse search in my computerized Bible, not a word search. Again, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, within 20, 30 years, I'm going to be able to hide my own Easter eggs. Here we go. It's Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. 
it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. Uh, this is Satan talking, by the way. Um, so Satan said that he's going to ascend. He's, he, said, he said, I will ascend. I will do this. I will do that. Let's just say that Satan suffered from a severe case of self-belief. Pride is what we call it. And Christianity does not teach self-belief. Satanism teaches self-belief. So I read this with that in mind. Um, everything is possible for him who believes. Uh, by the way, this was written by... Well, it's actually... Let's see here. Uh, uh, Richard Innes, who's a who is a with a group called Daily Encounter, and this is published at the Christian Post website. Jesus said, "Everything is possible for him who believes." Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, "I do believe! Help me overcome my unbelief." Um, this is quoted from Mark chapter nine, verses twenty-three and twenty-four from. The NIV. Now, let's read the story and help this this thing out. I don't know what to call it. Um, Mark chapter nine. Okay, because remember, in order to make it so that you're not deceived by anybody out there, there are three primary rules of biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. Okay. That being the case, when somebody starts off with a headline that says self-belief and then quotes Mark chapter 9 out of context, your little radars should be going off. Your biblical alarm system, the klaxon inside your head should be going, Wooga, something's wrong here. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Okay. Let me read this in context. Mark chapter 9. And when they, the disciples, came to, uh, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around him and the scribes arguing with them. This is, by the way, right after Jesus' uh, uh, transfiguration. Um, and so they're coming down from the mountain. It says, okay, they came to the great. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up to uh, him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them? Why, what, do you, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, Well, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And so they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit uh, saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Okay, This is an interesting story in the fact that if this were happening today, uh, Jesus could potentially get sued. Why? Because uh, here you got this kid having a seizure, and uh, Jesus doesn't do anything about it immediately. So here you got this kid rolling around, foaming at the mouth, having a seizure, and Jesus turns to his father and says, how long has this been happening to him? 
keep in mind, the kid is having a seizure. And he said, well, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, this is the, the verse in question. Now we have to ask this question. Is Jesus saying, A, all things are possible for the one who believes in himself? Or is Jesus saying all things are possible for the one who believes in, has faith in me? Jesus being God in human flesh. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. So immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now we've got the question. When the father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief, was he A, saying, I now believe in myself, or I believe in myself, help my unbelief in myself, or was he saying, I believe in you, or I believe and trust in God, help my unbelief, A or B? Nothing in the text leads us to believe that this man was saying that he believes in himself or that Jesus was saying all things are possible for the person who believes in himself. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said, well, this kind cannot be driven out by anything except for prayer. So there we are. That's the text in context, and we now have to ask the interpretive question. Was Jesus prompting this father to have belief in himself or belief in him? That is Jesus. Like I said, if you're going to uh, go with the, uh, the second one, that Jesus was prompting this guy to have belief in himself, you'd have to find other passages of Scripture that say that believing in yourself is the thing that we Christians need to be doing or that people need to be doing. So let's just do a little bit of a, a little bit of biblical work here. What I'm going to do here, I'm doing a word search and we're going to take a look and see if we can find some passages that say anything about believe in self. Here we go. Believe in yourself. Ready? Nothing. Nothing. Okay? Let's do a believe in me. Hmm. Hang on a second. Let's see. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus speaking. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and for him to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Okay. So here we got Jesus saying that he wants people to believe in him. Now, here's funny enough, 
that is also cross-referenced in Mark chapter 9, which we just read. Mark, uh, John chapter 16, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Hey, that's talking about the Holy Spirit. Let's do a little context on that one. Hang on a second. Mark chapter 16, verse 9 is the one we want, but listen to this. Jesus says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So the Holy Spirit's going to come and convict the world of their lack of belief in Jesus. Not about their lack of belief in their selves. Um, let me see here. Believes in. Okay, I'm going to do a little bit. I'm going to expand the search out here in my computerized Bible, which allows me to do some work like this. Let's see. And, uh, okay, Jesus said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's Mark chapter 115. Let's see. Um and and let's see, John, uh, to all, John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, that's Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Um, let's see, whoever believes in him may have eternal life, John three fifteen. for God so loved the world, this is John three sixteen, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. I'm doing all of this work here because this little devotional in the Christian Post is entitled Self-Belief. And it quotes Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, with the implication that Jesus is saying that everything is possible for him who believes. And the uh, Father exclaiming, I do believe, help my unbelief, that this is about self-belief. It isn't at all. We continue with the editorial news story, um, what do you want to call this thing, a devotional. Today I want to talk to you about having a healthy, not conceited belief in yourself and in God's purpose for you. Yeah, that's the uh, opening sentence after the opening verse by Richard Innes of uh, Daily Encounter. He says he wants to talk to you about having a healthy, not conceited belief in yourself. Dr. Joyce Brothers, because everybody knows that Dr. Joyce Brothers is one of the authors of Scripture, well-known author and psychologist, says, quote, An individual's self-concept, what he believes about himself, is the core of his personality. Is Dr. Joyce Brothers um, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write such things? It affects every aspect of human behavior, the ability to learn, the capacity to grow and change, the choice of friends, Mates and careers. It's no exaggeration to say that a strong positive self-image, that's self-belief, is the best possible preparation for success in life. Really? <clears throat> Let me continue reading. A healthy self-belief is not egotistic, quote, I'm the greatest attitude. Such an attitude is self-deception and a cover for deep insecurity and self-unbelief. Believing in yourself includes knowing and accepting your weaknesses as well as your strengths and believing with God's help, you can overcome your weakness and develop and use your strengths. Really, with God's help, I can overcome my weaknesses and develop and use my strengths. I don't think so. 
this is not what Scripture teaches at all. This devotional entitled Self-Belief at, Christ, at ChristianPost.com is not teaching biblical Christianity. This is something completely different. We continue. One very successful woman, a well-known entertainer, didn't have much going for her. She would not have won a beauty contest, and at age 38, she was living on welfare. After reading Claude Briston's The Magic of Believing and beginning to believe in herself, Phyllis Diller's life took a dramatic turn. One gift she had was the ability to make people laugh. Once she believed this, she didn't allow what she didn't have to stop her using what she had, what she did have. Jimmy Durante, both remember, keep in mind, both Phyllis Diller and Jimmy Durante are mentioned in the scripture um, just after the book of maps. Look it up in your Bible. Jimmy Durante was another entertainer who wouldn't have made fun, made a fortune with his looks, but he capitalized on his weakness and turned it into one of his greatest strengths. He didn't focus on his physical attributes, what he didn't have, but on his strengths, what he did have, and put those to good use because he believed he could. You and I can do the same for an even stronger and healthier sense of self-belief. Know that no matter what you have ever done or failed to do, God loves you totally and unconditionally, wants to forgive your every sin and wrongdoing, and, and has a God-given purpose for your life that he wants you to fulfill. All I ask is that you believe in yourself exactly the same way as God believes in you. That, folks, did you just hear that? This person who is writing for the Christian Post, Richard Innes, literally says that God wants to forgive your sins and all he's asking you to do is believe in yourself the same way God believes in you. I hate to break it to you. God doesn't believe in you at all. In fact, he knows you are not capable of saving yourself at all. He's not asking you to believe in yourself, and he has not promised to help you overcome your weaknesses and enhance your strengths. He's promised to crucify you in Christ. And the cross stands in direct opposition to this. We are not called to believe in ourselves. We are called to believe in the one whom the Father has sent. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me read their suggested prayer here. <clears throat> Dear God, thank you that you have a wonderful purpose for my life. Thank you, too, that you believe in me and that you never expect me to do more or less than what you have planned for me to do. Like the Father in today's scripture text, I do believe. Help my help me overcome my unbelief. Thank you for hearing and answering my prayer. Gratefully, in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I hate to say that this is one of those few prayers that if you prayed this, you might actually go to hell. Again, nowhere in scripture are we called to believe in ourselves. We are called to believe in and trust only in Jesus Christ. Trusting in yourself is a formula for disaster, eternal disaster, for you will stand before the Father in judgment on the judgment day fully naked because your righteousness is as filthy rags and you will have to give an accounting of your life. Or if you want to abandon self-belief and do the biblical thing, repent 
and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you believe in him, then you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and you can stand on the day of judgment and not have to fear God's wrath. Instead, you will be lovingly and warmly embraced in Jesus' arms and be told, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not because you are a good and faithful servant who believed in himself, but because you knew from Scripture that you were the problem and belief in self is the problem, and instead you repented of this worldly way of thinking, of this satanic way of thinking, and instead put your trust in Christ. Anyway, man, I can't believe that got published on a Christian website. What is happening to Christianity? All right, we're going into our second break. When we come back, you're going to hear me reviewing a sermon preached by Martin Luther. Well, actually, uh, it was originally preached by Martin Luther. I had to preach it so that I can review it on the twofold use of law and gospel. You definitely do not want to miss this uh, sermon review. Now, if you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can look me up on Facebook. Uh, my Facebook URL is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. And Pirate Christian is my name also at Twitter. You can look me up and follow me there and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. 
This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. We are launching into hour number two, which ought to be all kinds of interesting. Going to be reviewing a historical sermon originally written and delivered and preached by Martin Luther of the Lutheran Reformation, famous for the 95 Theses, Heidelberg Disputation bondage of the will, that guy, the reformer. The name of the sermon, by the way, is the twofold use of law and gospel. And since we're launching into a sermon review... That's right, our sermon review music. From the good, the bad, the ugly... And today's sermon definitely is not bad and or ugly. Yesterday's sermon delivered by Mark Beeson of Granger Community Church can only be described as moralistic, therapeutic, whatever. It wasn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was all law and it wasn't even biblically accurate. Yeah, God's waiting on us. God's up there waiting for you. Well, this is the antidote for the antidote for that poison. The name of the sermon, Twofold Use of Law and Gospel. It's really good, and I hope it's not distracting because I happen to be the one delivering the sermon. Uh, yeah, so it's going to be a little awkward. Why is it going to be awkward? Well, because I'm going to be, um, well, interrupting the sermon to comment on it and yet I'm the one who's preaching the sermon. This could cause a vortex to open up and disrupt the whole time-space continuum. At least I pray that's not what happens. Anyway, uh, so without any further ado, here is Martin Luther's sermon, The Twofold Use of Law and Gospel. I promise I will make this available as an independent file, and I put an echo on it to make it sound like I'm preaching in a cathedral so that when I interrupt myself... It, there's some kind of auditory distinction. Uh, so with that in mind, here we go. The Twofold Use of the Law and the Gospel, a sermon by Martin Luther. The text that forms the basis of the sermon is Paul's second epistle to the Corinthian church, chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. We read, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. This epistle sounds altogether strange and wonderful to individuals who are unaccustomed to Scripture language, particularly to that of Paul. To the inexperienced ear and heart, this is not intelligible. In popedom thus far, it has remained quite unapprehended, although the reading of these words has been practiced. That we may understand it, we must first get an idea of Paul's theme. Briefly, he would oppose the vain boasting of false apostles and preachers concerning their possession of the Spirit and their peculiar skill and gifts by praising and glorifying the office of a preacher of the gospel with which he is entrusted. For he found that especially in the church at Corinth, which, had converted, which he had converted by the words of his own lips and brought to faith in Christ, soon after his departure, the devil introduced his heresies, whereby the people were turned from the truth and betrayed into other ways. Since it became his duty to make an attack upon such heresies, he devoted both his epistles to the purpose of keeping the Corinthians in the right way, so that they might retain the pure doctrine received from him and beware of false spirits. The main thing which moved him to write his second epistle was his desire to emphasize to them his apostolic office of a preacher of the gospel in order to put to shame the glory of those other teachers, the glory they boasted with many words and great pretense. He starts in on this theme just before he reaches our text, and this is how it is he comes to speak in high terms of praise of the ministration of the gospel, and to contrast and compare the twofold ministration or message which may be proclaimed in the church, provided, of course, that God's word is to be preached and not the nonsense of human falsehood and the doctrine of the devil. One is that of the Old Testament, the other of the New. In other words, the office of Moses or the law and the office of the gospel of Christ. He contrasts the glory and the power of the latter with those of the former, which, it is true, is also the word of God. In this manner, he endeavors to defeat the teachings and pretensions of those seductive spirits who, as he but lately foretold, pervert God's word in that they greatly extol the law of God Yet at best, they do not teach its right use, but instead of making it tributary to faith in Christ, misuse it to teach works righteousness. Okay, now, interrupting myself, this is going to be weird. Oh, boy. I hope I can get, I can get over this. Um, okay, so here's the deal. Listen to what's going on. Luther already is talking about those people basically saying if they're even preaching God's word. Luther could have preached this sermon today. Could have preached the sermon today. Again, there was a reason for the Reformation, and the reason lies in the fact that the Church of Rome wasn't preaching the gospel. They were preaching works righteousness and mythologies from the pulpit. Sound familiar to any of you who listen to the sermon reviews we do here at Fighting for the Faith? 
Same thing. So uh, let's continue. But see, that's the distinction that's going on here. And Luther here is setting this up. These guys are not even preaching the law lawfully that Luther's critiquing. And it's as if he was listening to this program. Why? Because he had had a steady diet of the exact same type of gospelless, Christless preaching. It, it, he, he, he experienced that in medieval Catholicism. And now we're experiencing it all over again today in American evangelicalism. Since the words before us are in reality a continuation of those which the chapter opens, the latter must be considered in this connection. Therefore, we read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We, my fellow apostles and co-laborers and I, he says, do not ask for letters and seals from others commending us to you or from you commending us to others in order to seduce people after gaining their goodwill in your church and in others as well. Such is the practice of the false apostles. And many even now present letters and certificates from honest preachers and churches and make them the means whereby their unrighteous plotting may be received in good faith. Such letters, thank God, we stand not in need of, and you need not fear we shall use such means of deception. For you are yourselves the letter we have written and wherein we may pride ourselves in which we are present everywhere. For it is a matter of common knowledge that you have been taught by us and brought to Christ through our ministry. Inasmuch as his activity among them is his testimonial, and they themselves are aware that through his ministerial office he has constituted them a church, he calls them an epistle written by himself, not with ink and in paragraphs, not on paper or wood, nor engraved upon the hard rock as the Ten Commandments written upon tables of stone, which Moses placed before the people, but written by the Holy Spirit upon fleshly tablets." Tables, hearts of tender flesh. The spirit is the ink or the inscription, yes, even the writer himself. But the pencil or pen and the hand of the writer is the ministry of Paul. This figure of a written epistle is, however, in accord with Scripture's usage. Moses commands in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, 11 and 18, that the Israelites write the Ten Commandments in all places where they walked or stood upon the posts of their houses and upon their gates and even have them before their eyes and in their hearts. Again, Proverbs chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, Solomon says, Keep my commands and my law as the apple of your eye. Bind them upon your fingers. Write them upon the tablet of your heart. He speaks as a father to his child when giving the child an earnest charge to remember a certain thing. Dear child, remember this, forget it not, keep it in your heart. Likewise, God says in the book of Jeremiah the prophet, I will put my law in their inward parts, and in their heart I will write it. Here, man's heart is represented as a sheet, or a slate, or a page. Upon is written the preached word. 
For the heart is to receive and securely keep the word. In this sense, Paul says, We have, by our ministry, written a booklet or a letter upon your heart, which witnesses that you believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and have the assurance that through Christ you are redeemed and saved. This testimony is what is written on your heart. The letters are not characters traced with ink or crayon, but the living thoughts, the fire, and the force of the heart. Note further that it is his ministry to which Paul ascribes the preparation of their heart thereon and the inscription which constitutes them living epistles of Christ. He contrasts his ministry with the blind fancies of those fanatics who seek to receive and dream of having the Holy Spirit without the oral word, who, perchance, creep into a corner and grasp the Spirit through dreams and directing the people away from the preached word and the visible ministry. I'm going to stop here. Again, it's as if Luther was living today uh, because we have the same thing going on here. People who claim that they can receive uh, the Spirit without the Word of God. You think of Patricia King and her gang, the John Crowders and the New Mystics and those people token the Holy Ghost. They preach their dreams, yet they don't bring us Christ and Him crucified, and there is no Spirit in what they're doing, at least not the Holy Spirit. But Paul says that the Spirit through his preaching, has wrought in the hearts of his Corinthians to the end that Christ lives and is mighty in them. After such statements, he bursts into praise of the ministerial office, comparing the message of the preaching of Moses with that of himself and the apostles. He says, Such confidence we have through Christ to God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to account anything as from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. These words are blows and thrusts for the false apostles and preachers. Paul is the mortal enemy to the blockheads who make great boasts pretending to what they do not possess and what they cannot do, who boast of having the Spirit in great measure, who are ready to counsel and to aid the whole world, who pride themselves on the ability to invent something new. It is to be surpassingly precious and heavenly thing that they are to spin out of their heads as the dreams of the Pope and monks have been in times past. We do not, Paul says, we rely not upon ourselves or our wisdom and ability. We preach not what we ourselves have invented. But this is our boast and trust in Christ before God that we have made of you a divine epistle, having written upon your hearts not our thoughts, but the word of God. We are not, however, glorifying our own power, but the works and the power of him who has called and equipped us for such an office, from whom proceeds all you have heard and believed." It is a glory that every preacher may claim to be able to say in full confidence of heart, This trust I have toward God in Christ, that what I teach and preach is truly the word of God. Likewise, when he performs other official duties in the church, baptizes a child, absolves and comforts a sinner, it must be done in the same conviction that such is the command of Christ. Okay, listen, he's saying that a Christian preacher is only to preach... The word of God, the thing given to him. 
not his own imagination, his own inventions. <clears throat> Just re- reviewing in my mind some of the sermons we've reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith, it seems like Christian preachers, if you can call them that anymore, are preaching anything but the Word of God and only their own inventions and their own imaginations. He who would teach and exercise authority in the church without this glory, it is profitable for him, as Christ says, that a great millstone should be hung around his neck and that he should be sunk into the depths of the sea. For the devil's lies he preaches, and death is what he effects. Our papists in times past, after much and long-continued teaching, after many inventions and works whereby they hoped to be saved, nevertheless always doubted in heart and mind as to whether or not they had pleased God. The teaching and works of all heretics and seditious spirits certainly do not bespeak for them trust in Christ. Their own glory is the object of their teaching, and the homage and praise of the people is the goal of their desires. But Paul says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to account anything as from ourselves. As said before, this is spoken in denunciation of the false spirits who believe that by reason of eminent equipment of special creation and election, they are called to come to the rescue of people expecting wonders from whatever they say and do. Now we know that ourselves to be of the same clay whereof they are made. Indeed, we perhaps have the greater call from God, yet we cannot boast of being capable of ourselves to advise or to aid men. We cannot even originate an idea calculated to give help. And when it comes to the knowledge of how one may stand before God and attain to eternal life, That is truly not to be achieved by our own work or power, nor to originate from our own brains. In other things, those pertaining to this temporal life, you may glory in what you know. You may advance the teachings of reason. You may invent ideas of your own. For example, how to make shoes or clothes, how to govern a household, how to manage a herd. In such things, exercise your mind to the best of your ability, Cloth or leather of this sort will permit itself to be stretched and cut according to the good pleasure of the tailor or shoemaker. But in spiritual matters, human reasoning certainly is not in order. Other intelligence, other skill and power are requisite here, something to be granted by God himself and revealed through his word. What mortal has ever discovered or fathomed the truth that the three persons in the eternal divine essence are one God, that the second person, the Son of God, was obliged to become a man, born of a virgin, and that no way of life could be opened for us save through his crucifixion? Such truth never would have been heard nor preached, would never in all eternity have been published, learned, and believed, had not God himself revealed it. For this reason, they are blind fools of the first magnitude and dangerous characters who would boast of their grand performances and think that the people are served when they preach their own fancies and inventions. It has been the practice in the church for anyone to introduce any teaching he saw fit. For example, the monks and the priests have daily produced new saints, pilgrimages, special prayers, works and sacrifices in the effort to blot out sin redeem souls from purgatory, and so on. They who make up things of this kind are not such as put their trust in God through Christ, but rather such as defy God and Christ. 
Into the hearts of men where Christ alone should be, they shove the filth and, the, and write the lies of the devil. Yet they think themselves and themselves only qualified for all essential teaching and the work, self-grown doctors that they are, saints all-powerful without the help of God and Christ. Of ourselves, in our own wisdom and strength, we cannot affect, discover, nor teach any counsel or help for man, whether for ourselves or for others. Any good work we perform among you, any doctrine we write upon your heart that is God's own work, he puts into our heart and to our mouths what we should say and impresses it upon your heart through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we cannot ascribe to ourselves any honor, cannot seek our own glory as the, as the self-instructed and proud spirits do. We must give to God alone the honor and must glory in the fact that by his grace and power, he works in you unto salvation through the office that is committed to us. Now, Paul's thought here is that nothing should be taught and practiced in the church but what is unquestionably God's word. It will not do to introduce or perform anything whatever upon the strength of man's judgment. You got that? Nothing should be preached in church unless it is unquestionably God's word. Man's achievements, man's reasoning and power are of no avail to save insofar as they come from God. As Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 11, If any man speaks, he should speak as if he were speaking the very oracles of God. And if any man ministers, ministering as of the strength which God supplies. In short, let him who would be wise, who would boast of great skill, talents, and power, confine himself to things other than spiritual, with respect to spiritual matters, let him keep his place and refrain from boasting and pretense. For it is of no moment that men observe your greatness and ability. The important thing is that poor souls may be may rest assured of being presented with God's works and word, whereby they must be saved. As Paul says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul here proceeds to exalt the office and power of the gospel over the glorying of the false apostles and elevate the power of the word above that of all other doctrine, even the law of God. Truly, we are not sufficient of ourselves and have nothing to boast of so far as human activity is considered. For that is without merit or power, however strenuous the effort may be to fulfill God's law. We have, however, something infinitely better to boast of, something not grounded in our own activity. By God, we have been made sufficient for a noble ministry termed the ministry of a new covenant. This ministry is not only exalted far above any teaching to be evolved by human wisdom, skill, and power, but is more glorious than the ministry termed the Old Covenant, which in times past was delivered to the Jews through Moses. While this ministry clings in common with other doctrine to the word given by revelation, it is not the agency whereby the Holy Spirit works in the heart. Therefore, Paul says it is not a ministry of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
This passage relative to spirit and letter has in the past been wholly strange language to us. Indeed, to such extent has man's nonsensical interpretation perverted and weakened it that I, though a learned doctor of the Holy Scriptures, failed to understand it altogether, and I could find no one to teach me. And to this day it is unintelligible to all of popedom. In fact, even the older teachers, Origen, Jerome, and others, have not caught Paul's thought. And no wonder, truly, for it is essentially a doctrine far beyond the power of man's intelligence to comprehend. When human reason meddles with it, it becomes perplexed. The doctrine is wholly unintelligible to it, for human thought goes no farther than the law and the Ten Commandments. Laying hold upon these, it confines itself to them. It does not attempt to do more, being governed by the principle that unto him who fulfills the demands of the law or commandments, God is gracious. Now, going to stop here. Notice what Luther's doing here is he's setting this up in such a way that to the natural man, he, natural man gets the Ten Commandments and is completely fine to stay with the Ten Commandments because we understand that. And the natural man would never think of the gospel. Reason knows nothing about the wretchedness of depraved nature. It does not recognize the fact that no man is able to keep God's commandments, that all are under sin and condemnation, and that the only way whereby help could be received was for God to give his Son for the world, ordaining another ministry, one through which grace and reconciliation might be proclaimed to us. Now, he who does not understand the sublime subject of which Paul speaks cannot but miss the true meaning of his words. How much more did we invite this fate when we threw the scriptures and St. Paul's epistles under the bench and like swine in husks wallowed in man's nonsense? Therefore, we must submit to correction and learn to understand the apostles' utterance correctly. Letter and spirit have been understood to mean, according to Origen and Jerome, the obvious sense of the written word. St. Augustine, it must be admitted, has gotten an inkling of the truth. Now, the position of the former teachers would perhaps not be quite incorrect did they correctly explain the words. By literary sense, they signify the meaning of a scripture narrative according to the ordinary interpretation of the words. By spiritual sense, they signify the secondary, hidden sense found in the words. For instance, the scripture narrative in Genesis 3 records how the serpent persuaded the woman to eat of the forbidden fruit and to give to her husband, who also ate. This narrative, in its simplest meaning, represents what they understood by letter. Spirit, however, they understand to mean the spiritual interpretation, which is thus... The serpent signifies the evil temptation which lures to sin. The woman represents the sensual state or the sphere in which the enticements and temptations make themselves felt. Adam, the man, stands for reason, which is called the man's highest endowment. Now, when reason does not yield to the allurements of external senses, is all is well. But when it permits itself to waver and consent, the fall has taken place. <clears throat> Origen was the first to trifle this way with the Holy Scriptures, and many others followed him. Until now, it is thought to be the sign of great cleverness for the church to be filled with such quibblings. 
The aim is to imitate Paul, who in Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, figuratively interprets the story of Abraham's two sons, the one by the free woman or the mistress of the house and the other by the handmaid. The two women, Paul says, represent two covenants. One covenant makes only bondservants, which is just what he is in our text terms, the ministration of the letter. The other leads to liberty, or as he says here, the ministration of the spirit, which gives life. And the two sons are the two peoples, one of which does not go farther than the law, while the other accepts in faith the gospel. True. This is an interpretation not directly suggested by the narrative in the text. Paul himself calls it an allegory, that is, a mystic narrative or a story with a hidden meaning. But he does not say that the literal text is necessarily the letter that kills and the allegory or the hidden meaning the spirit. But the false teachers assert of all scripture that the text or the record itself is but a dead letter in its interpretation being the spirit. Yet they have not pushed interpretation farther than the teaching of the law. And it is precisely the law which Paul means when he speaks of the letter. Paul employs the word letter in such contemptuous in such a contemptuous sense in reference to the law that the law is nevertheless the word of God when he compares it to the ministry of the gospel. The letter is to him the doctrine of the Ten Commandments, which teach how we should obey God, honor parents, love our neighbor, and so on. The very best doctrine to be found in all books, sermons, and schools. The word letter is to the Apostle Paul everything which may take the form of doctrine, of literary arrangement, of record, so long as it remains something spoken or written. Also, thoughts which may be pictured or expressed by word or writing, But it is not that which is written in the heart to become its life. Letter is the whole law of Moses or the Ten Commandments, though the supreme authority of such teaching is not denied. It matters not whether you hear them, read them, or reproduce them mentally. For instance, when I sit down to meditate upon the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, or the second, or the third, or the fourth. I have something which I can read, write, discuss, and aim to fulfill with all of my might. The process is quite similar when the emperor or the prince gives a command and says, This you shall do, that you shall not do. This is all what the apostle calls the letter, or as we have called it on another occasion, the written sense. Now, as opposed to the letter, there is another doctrine or message which he terms the ministry of a new covenant, and of the Spirit. This doctrine does not teach what works are required of man, for that man has already heard, but it makes known to him what God would do for him and bestow upon him, indeed what he has already done. He has given his Son, Christ, for us, because of our disobedience to the law which no man fulfills. We are under God's wrath and condemnation. Christ made satisfaction for our sins, effected a reconciliation with God, and gave to us his own righteousness. Nothing is said in this ministration of man's deeds. It tells rather of the works of Christ, who is unique in that he was born of a virgin, died for sin, and rose from the dead, something no other man has been able to do. 
This doctrine is revealed through none but the Holy Spirit, and none other confesses the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in the hearts of them who hear and accept the doctrine. Therefore, this ministry is termed a ministry of the Spirit. The apostle employs the words letter and spirit to contrast the two doctrines, to emphasize his office and show its advantage over all others. However eminent the teachers whom they boast, and however great the spiritual unction which they vaunt, it is of design that he he does not term the two dispensations law and gospel, but names them according to the representative effects produced. He honors the gospel with a superior term, the ministry of the Spirit. Of the law, on the contrary, he speaks almost contemptuously, as if he would not honor it with the title of God's commandment, which in reality it is. According to his own admission later on, that is deliverance to Moses and its injunction upon the children of Israel was an occasion of surpassing glory. Why does Paul choose this method? Is it right for one to despise or dishonor God's law? Is not a chaste and honorable life a matter of beauty and godliness? Such facts, it may be contended, are implanted by God in reason itself, and all books teach them. They are the governing force in the world. I reply, Paul's chief concern is to defeat the vainglory and pretensions of false preachers and to teach them the right conception and appreciation of the gospel which he proclaimed. What Paul means is this. When the Jews vaunt their law of Moses, which was received as law from God and recorded upon two tables of stone, when they vaunt their learned, their learned and saintly preachers of the law and its exponents and hold their deeds and manner of life up to admiration, what is all that compared to the gospel message? The claim may well be made, a fine sermon, a splendid exposition, but after all, nothing more comes of it than precepts, expositions, written commandments, the precept, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and thy neighbor as thyself, remains a mere array of words. When much time and effort have been spent in conforming one's life to it, nothing has been accomplished. You have pods without peas, husks without kernels. For it is impossible to keep the law without Christ. Though man may, for the sake of honor or property or from fear of punishment, feign outward holiness, the heart which does not discern God's grace in Christ cannot turn to God nor trust in Him. It cannot love His commandments and delight in Him, but rather resist them. For nature rebels at compulsion. No man likes to be a captive in chains. One does not voluntarily bow to the rod of punishment or submit to the executioner's sword. Rather, because of these things, his anger against the law is but increased, and he ever thinks, Would that I might unhindered steal, rob, hoard, gratify my lust, and so on. And when restrained by force, he would there were no law and no God. And this is the case where conduct shows some effects of discipline, in that the outer man has been subjected to the teaching of the law. But in a far more appalling degree does inward rebellion ensue when the heart feels the full force of the law. When standing before God's judgment, it feels the sentence of condemnation. 
as we shall presently hear. For the apostle says, the letter kills. Then the truly hard knot appears. Human nature fumes and rages against the law. Offenses appear in the heart, the fruit of hate and enmity against the law. And presently, human nature flees before God and is incensed at God's judgment. It begins to question the equality, the equity of his dealings, to ask if he is a just God. Influenced by such thoughts, it falls ever deeper into doubt. It murmurs and chafes until finally, unless the gospel comes to the rescue, it utterly despairs, as did Judas and Saul, and perhaps pass pass out of this life with God and creation. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, that the law works sin in the heart of man, and sin works death or kills. You see... You see then why the law is called the letter. Though noble doctrine, it remains on the surface. It does not enter the heart as a vital force which begets obedience. Such is the baseness of the human nature. It will not and cannot conform to the law, and so corrupt is mankind. There is no individual who does not violate all of God's commandments in spite of daily hearing the the preached word and having held up to view God's wrath and eternal condemnation. Indeed, the harder-pressed man is, the more furiously he storms against the law. The substance of the matter is this. When all the commandments have been put together, when their message receives every particle of praise to which it is entitled, it is still a mere letter, that is, teaching not put into practice. By letter is signified all manner of law, doctrine, and message which goes no farther than the oral or written word, which consists only of the powerless letter. The point he's making is critical here. The point that he is making, that Luther is making here, is that all these prognosticators and promoters of the law, they don't even put it into practice. You can preach law, 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 all of you, all that you want. In the end, it's just the letter. It doesn't produce the obedience that it demands. It cannot, and it was never intended to. And you and your wretched and depraved state have no ability to really keep God's law at all. To illustrate, a law promulgated by a prince or the authorities of a city, if not enforced, remains merely an open letter, which makes a demand indeed, but ineffectually. Similarly, God's law, although a teaching of supreme authority and the eternal will of God, must suffer itself to become a mere empty letter or husk. Without a quickening of the heart and devoid of fruit, the law is powerless to effect life and salvation. It may well be called a veritable table of omissions. That is, it is a written enumeration not of duties performed, but of duties cast aside. In the languages of the world, it is a royal edict which which remains unobserved and unperformed. In this light, St. Augustine understood the law. He says, commenting on Psalm 17, What is law without grace, but a letter without spirit? Human nature without the aid of Christ and his grace, cannot keep it. Again, Paul, in terming the gospel a ministry of the Spirit, would call attention to its power to produce in the hearts of men an effect wholly different from that of the law. 
The gospel is accompanied by the Holy Spirit and it creates a new heart. Man, driven into fear and anxiety by the preaching of the law, hears this gospel message, which instead of reminding him of God's demands, tells him what God has done for him. It points not to man's works, but to the works of Christ and bids him confidently believe that for the sake of his son, God will forgive his sins and accept him as his child. And this message, when received in faith, immediately cheers and comforts the heart. The heart will no longer flee from God. Rather, it turns to him. Finding grace with God and experiencing his mercy, the heart feels drawn to him. It commences to call upon him and to treat and revere him as its beloved God. In proportion as such faith and solace grow, also love for the commandments will grow, and obedience to them will be man's delight. Therefore, God would have his gospel message urged unceasingly as the means of awakening man's heart to discern his state and to recall the great grace and loving kindness of God, with the result that the power of the Holy Spirit is increased constantly. Note, no influence of the law, no work of man is present here. The force is a new and heavenly one, the power of the Holy Spirit. He impresses upon the heart Christ and his works, making it of a true book which does not consist in the the tracery of mere letters and words, but in true life and action. God promised of old in Joel chapter 2 verse 28 and other passages to give the Spirit through the new message, the gospel. And he has verified his promise by public manifestations in connection with the preaching of that gospel, as on the day of Pentecost and again later. When the apostles, Peter, and others began to preach, the Holy Spirit descended visibly from heaven upon their hearts. Up to that time, throughout the the period the law was preached, no one had heard or seen such manifestations. The fact could not be grasped that this was a vastly different message from that of the law when such mighty results followed in its train. And yet its substance was no more than what Paul declared— Through this man is proclaimed unto you remission of sins. And by him, everyone that believes is justified, declared righteous from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. In this teaching, you see no more the empty letters, the valueless husks or shells of the law, which unceasingly enjoins, this shalt thou do and observe and ever in vain. You see instead the true kernel and the power which confers Christ and the fullness of his Holy Spirit. In consequence, men hardly believe the message of the gospel and enjoy its riches. They are accounted as having fulfilled the Ten Commandments. John says in John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Of his fullness we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John's thought is that the law has indeed been given by Moses, but what avails that fact? 
To be sure, it is a noble doctrine and portrays a beautiful and instructive picture of man's duty to God and all of mankind. It is really excellent as to the letter, yet it remains empty. It does not enter into the heart. Therefore, it is called law. Nor can it become aught else, so long as nothing more is given. Before there can be fulfillment, another than Moses must come, bringing another doctrine. Instead of a law enjoined, there must be grace and truth revealed. For to enjoin a command and to embody the truth are two different things, just as teaching and doing differ. Moses, it is true, teaches the doctrine of the law, so far as exposition is concerned. But he can neither fulfill it himself nor give others the ability to do so. That it might be fulfilled, God's Son had to come with his fullness. He has fulfilled the law for himself, and it is he who communicates to our empty heart the power to obtain the same fullness. This becomes possible when we receive for grace for grace. That is, when we come to the enjoyment of Christ, and for the sake of him who enjoys the God fullness of grace. Although our own obedience to the law is still imperfect, being possessed of solace and grace, we receive by his power the Holy Spirit also, so that instead of harboring mere empty letters within us, we come to the truth and begin to fulfill God's law in such a way, however, that we draw from his fullness and drink from that as of a fountain." Paul gives us the same thought in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where he compares Adam and, and Christ. Adam, he says, by his disobedience in paradise, became the source of sin and death in the world. By the sin of this one man, condemnation passed to all men. But on the other hand, Christ, by his obedience and righteousness, has become for us the abundant source wherefrom all may obtain righteousness and the power of obedience. And with respect to the latter source, it is far richer and more abundant than the former. While by the single sin of one man, sin and death passed unto all men to wax still more powerful with the advent of the law, of such surpassing strength and greatness, on the other hand, is the grace and bounty which we have in Christ, that it, is, it not only washes away the particular sin of one man, Adam, which until, until Christ came, overwhelmed all men in death, but overwhelms and blots out all sin whatsoever. Thus, they who receive his fullness of grace and bounty unto righteousness are, according to Paul, lords of life, through Jesus Christ alone. You see now how the two messages differ and why Paul exalts the one, the preaching of the gospel, and calls it a main administration or ministry of the Spirit, but terms the other, the law, a mere empty letter? His object is to humble the pride of the false apostles and preachers, which they felt in their Judaism and the law of Moses, telling the people with bold pretensions, Beloved, let Paul preach what he will. He cannot overthrow Moses, who on Mount Sinai received the law, God's irrevocable command, obedience to which is ever the only way to salvation. Similarly today, papists, Anabaptists, and other sects may cry, outcry, What mean you by preaching so much about faith in Christ? 
Are the people thereby made better? Surely works are essential. Arguments of this character have indeed a semblance of merit, but when examined by the light of truth are mere, empty, worthless twaddle. For if deeds or works are to be considered, there are the Ten Commandments. We teach and practice these as well as they. The commandments would answer the purpose indeed if one could preach them so effectively as to compel their fulfillment. But the question is whether what is preached is also practiced. Is there something more than mere words or letters, as Paul says? Do the words result in life and spirit? This message we have in common. Unquestionably, one must teach the Ten Commandments and, what is more, live them. But we charge that they are not observed. Therefore, something else is required in order to render obedience to them possible. When Moses and the law are made to say, You should do thus, God demands this of you, what does it profit? I, beloved Moses, I hear that plainly, and it is certainly a righteous command. But pray tell me, where shall I obtain the ability to do? Alas, I, I never have done, or nor can I do. It is not easy to spend money from an empty pocket or to drink from an empty can. If I am to pay my debt or to quench my thirst, tell me how first to fill my pocket. But upon this point such paddlers are silent. They are but continued drive and plague with the law. Let the people stick to their sins and make merry of their own to their own hurt. In this light, Paul here portrays the false apostles and like and their like as pernicious schismatics who make great boast of having a clear understanding and of knowing much better what to teach than is the case of what true preachers of the gospel. And when they do their very best, when they pretend great things and do wonders with their preaching, there is not but mere empty letter. Indeed, their message falls far short of Moses. Moses was a noble preacher, truly, and wrought greater things than any of them may do. Nevertheless, the doctrine of the law could do no more than remain a letter, an Old Testament, and God had ordained a different doctrine, a New Testament, which should impart the Spirit. It is the letter, says Paul, which we preach, and if any glorying is to be done, we can glory in better things and make the defiant plea that they are not the only teachers of what ought to be done, incapable as they are of carrying out their own precepts. We give direction and power as to performing and living those precepts. For this reason, our message is not called the Old Testament or the message of the dead letter, but of that of the New Testament and of the living spirit. No seditious spirit, it is certain, ever carries out its own precepts, nor will he ever be able, uh, capable of doing so. Though he may loudly boast the spirit alone as his guide, of this fact you may be rest assured, for such individuals know nothing more than the doctrine of works, nor can they rise higher and point you to anything else. They may indeed speak of Christ, but it is only to hold him up as an example of patience in suffering. In short, 
there can be no New Testament preached if the doctrine of faith in Christ be left out. The Spirit cannot enter into the heart, but all teaching, endeavor, reflection, works, and power remain there as mere letters, devoid of grace, truth, and life. Without Christ, the heart remains unchanged and unrenewed. It has no more power to fulfill the law than the book in which the Ten Commandments are written, or the stones upon which engraved, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here it is yet stronger condemnation of the glory of the doctrine of the law, yet higher exaltation of the gospel ministry. Is the apostle overbold in that he dares thus to assail the law and say the law is not only a lifeless letter, but qualified merely to kill? Surely that is not calling the law a good and profitable message, but one altogether as harmful. Who, unless he would be a cursed heretic in the eyes of the world and invite execution as a blasphemer, would dare to speak thus except Paul himself? Even Paul must praise the law, which is God's command, declaring it good and not to be despised, nor in any way modified, but to be confirmed and followed so completely as Christ says that not a tittle of it shall pass away. How then does Paul come to speak so disparagingly, even abusively of the law, actually presenting it as veritable death and poison? Well, his is a sublime doctrine, one that reason does not understand. The world, particularly they who would be called holy and godly, cannot tolerate it at all. For it amounts to nothing short of pronouncing all our works, however precious, mere death in poison. Paul's purpose is to bring about the complete overthrow of the boast of the false teachers and hypocrites and to reveal the weakness of their doctrine, showing how little it affects even at its best, since it offers only the law. Christ remains unproclaimed and unknown. They say in terms of vainglorious eloquence that if a man diligently keep the commandments and do many good works, he shall be saved. But theirs are only vain words, a pernicious doctrine. This fact is eventually learned by him who, having heard no other doctrine, trusts in their false one. He finds out that it holds neither comfort nor power of life but only doubt and anxiety followed by death and destruction. When man, conscious of his failure to keep God's command, is constantly urged by the law to make payment of his debt and confronted with nothing but the terrible wrath of God and eternal condemnation, he cannot but sink into despair over his sins. Such is the inevitable consequence where the law alone is taught with a view to attaining heavenly heaven thereby. The vanity of such trust in works is illustrated in the case of the noted hermit mentioned in Vitae Patrum, Lives of the Fathers. For over seventy years the hermit had led a life of utmost austerity and had many followers. When the hour of death came, he began to tremble and for three days was in a state of agony. His disciples came to comfort him and exhorting him to die in peace since he had led so holy a life. But he replied, Alas, I, I truly have all my life served Christ and lived austerely, but God's judgment greatly differs from that of men. Note, this worthy man, despite his holiness of life, 
has no acquaintance with any article but that of divine judgment according to the law. He knows not the comfort of Christ's gospel. After a life spent in the attempt to keep God's commandments and secure salvation, the law now slays him through his own works. He is compelled to exclaim, Alas, who knows how God will look upon my efforts? Who may stand before him? That means to forfeit heaven through the verdict of his own conscience. The work he has wrought and his holiness of life avail to nothing. They merely push him deeper into death since he is without the solace of the gospel, while others, such as the thief on the cross and the publican, grasp the comfort of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Thus, sin is conquered. They escape the sentence of the law and pass through death into life. Now, the meaning of the contrasting clause, the Spirit gives life, becomes clear. The reference is to not else or to nothing else but the Holy Gospel, a message of healing and salvation, a precious, comforting word. It comforts and refreshes the sad heart. It rests out of the jaws of death and hell, as it were, and transports into the certain hope of eternal life through faith in Christ. When the last hour comes to the believer and death and God's judgment appear before his eyes, he does not base his comfort upon his works. Even though he may have lived the holiest life possible, he says with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, I know nothing against myself, yet I am not hereby justified. These words imply being ill-pleased with self, with the whole life indeed, even the putting to death of self. Though the heart says, By my works I am neither made righteous nor saved, which is practically admitting oneself to be worthy of death and condemnation. The Spirit extricates from despair through the gospel faith, which confesses, as did St. Bernard in the hour of death, Dear Lord Jesus, I am aware that my life at its best has been, not, has been but worthy of condemnation. But... I trust in the fact that you have died for me and have sprinkled me with blood from your holy wounds. For I have been baptized into your name and have, been, have given heed to your word, whereby you have called me, awarded me grace in life, and bidden me believe. In this assurance I will pass out of life, not in uncertainty and anxiety, thinking, who knows what sentence God in heaven will pass upon me. The Christian must not utter such a question. The sentence against his life and his works has since long passed by the law. Therefore, he must confess himself guilty and condemned, but he lives by the gracious judgment of God declared from heaven, whereby the sentence of the law is overruled and reversed. It is this, he that believes on the Son has eternal life. When the consolation of the gospel has been received and it has been wrested from the heart of death and the terrors of hell, the Spirit's influence is felt. By its power, God's law begins to live in man's heart. He loves it, delights in it, and enters upon its fulfillment. Thus, eternal life begins here being continued forever and perfected in the life to come. Now you see how much more glorious, 
How much better is the doctrine of the apostles, the New Testament, than the doctrine of those who preach merely great works and holiness without Christ? We should see in this fact an incentive to hear the gospel with gladness. We ought joyfully to thank God for it when we learn how it has power to bring to men life and eternal salvation, and when it gives us assurance that the Holy Spirit accompanies it and is imparted to believers. But if the ministry of death written and engraven on stones came with glory so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look upon the face of Moses for the glory of his face, which was the glory that was passing away, how shall not rather the ministry of the Spirit be with glory? For the ministration, the ministry of condemnation has glory. Much more does the ministry of righteousness exceed in glory. Paul is in an ecstasy of delight, and his heart overflows in words of praise for the gospel. Again, he handles the law severely, calling it a ministry or doctrine of death and condemnation. What term significant of greater abomination could he apply to God's law than to call it a doctrine of death and hell? And again, in Galatians chapter 2, 17, he calls it, a minister or preacher of sin. And in Galatians chapter 3.10, the message which proclaims a curse, saying, As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Absolute, then, is the conclusion that law and works are powerless to justify before God. For how can a doctrine proclaiming only sin, death, and condemnation justify and save? Paul is compelled to speak thus, as we said above, because the infamous presumption of both teachers and pupils in that they permit flesh and blood to flirt with the law and make their own works which they bring before God their boast. Yet nothing is affected but self-deception and destruction. For when the law is viewed in its true light, when its glory, as Paul has it, is revealed, it is found to do nothing more than to kill man and to sink him into condemnation. Therefore, the Christian will do well to learn this text of Paul and have an armor against the boasting of false teachers and the torments and trials of the devil when he urges the law and induces men to seek righteousness in their own works, tormenting their heart with the thought that salvation is dependent upon the achievement of the individual. The Christian will do well to learn this text, I say so, that in such conflicts that he may take the devil's own sword, saying, why do you annoy me with the talk of the law in my works? What is the law after all? However, much you may preach it to me, but that which makes me feel the weight of sin, death, and condemnation. Why should I seek, therefore, righteousness before God by the law? When Paul speaks of the glory of the law, of which the Jewish teachers of works righteousness boast, he has reference to the things narrated in the 20th and 24th chapters of Exodus, how, when the law was given, God descended in majesty and glory from heaven, and there were thunderings and lightnings, and the mountain was encircled with fire, and how, when Moses returned from the mountain bringing the law, his face shone with a glory so dazzling that the people could not look upon his face, and he was obliged to veil it. Turning their glory against them, Paul says, Truly, we do not deny the glory, splendor, and majesty were there. 
But what does such glory do but compel souls to flee before God and drive into death and hell? We believers, however, boast of another glory, that of our ministry. The gospel record tells us that Christ clearly revealed such glory to his disciples when his face shone like the sun. And Moses and Elijah were present. Before the manifestation of such glory, the disciples did not flee. They beheld with amazed joy and said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. We will make here tabernacles for, for, for you and for Moses, etc. Compare the scenes. Compare the two scenes and you will understand plainly the import of Paul's words here. As before said, this is the substance of his meaning. The law produces nothing but terror and death when it dazzles the heart with its glory and stands revealed in its true nature. On the other hand, the gospel yields comfort and joy. But to explain in detail the signification of the veiled face of Moses and of his shining uncovered face would take too long to enter upon here. There is also a special comfort to be derived from Paul's assertion that the ministry or doctrine of the law passes away. For otherwise, there would be nothing but eternal condemnation. The doctrine of the law passes away when the preaching of the gospel of Christ finds its place. To Christ, Moses shall yield, that he may alone who may hold sway. Moses shall not terrify the conscience of the believer. When perceiving the glory of Moses, the conscience trembles and despairs before God's wrath. Then it is time for Christ's glory to shine with its gracious, comforting light into the heart. Then can the heart endure Moses and Elijah. For the glory of the law or the unveiled face of Moses shall shine only until man is humbled and driven to desire the blessed countenance of Christ. If you come to Christ... You shall no longer hear Moses to frighten you and to terrorize you. You shall hear him as one who remains servant to the Lord Jesus Christ, leaving the solace and the joy of his countenance unobscured. In conclusion, for verily that which has been made glorious has been made glorious in this respect by reason of the glory that is surpassing. The meaning here is, when the glory and the holiness of Christ, revealed through the preaching of the gospel, is rightly perceived, then the glory of the law, which is but feeble and transitory glory, is seen to be not really glorious. It is mere dark clouds in contrast to the light of Christ, shining to lead us out of sin, death, and hell, and unto God and eternal life. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, there you have it. First here at Fighting for the Faith, a sermon, powerful sermon, written by Martin Luther, entitled The Twofold Use of the Law in the Gospel. You know, listening to that the second time was even better than delivering it and all the preparation I did the first time. Folks, it's this kind of preaching that Fighting for the Faith endeavors to get out into the world. The reason why we compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God is because there's so many words being spoken, so much ink being spilled, 
about what God says or this or that, and yet it's Christless and doesn't contain the gospel and only contains the law or man-made imaginations. Jesus said regarding the last days that see to it that no one deceives you. And if someone's going to preach to you the law and glory in their selves and their so-called good works, uh, they're doing nothing more than selling you a bill of goods. If you are growing in your understanding of the Christian faith and in the depth of understanding of the gracious God and Savior that we have in Jesus Christ, who died even for your sins, will you partner with us and help us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you? You can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our yellow donate buttons, or you can do it the traditional way and make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, sadly, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And if you would like to email me and give you your feedback regarding what you've heard, anything that you've heard on today's program or a previous program, please do so. You can do that by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook. Uh, my URL there is Facebook slash Pirate Christian. Or if you'd like to receive our subversive microblogging tweets on Twitter, look me up there again. Pirate Christian's my name. Until next time, may God richly bless you in his grace and mercy that through Jesus Christ our Lord and his shed blood for you on the cross. Amen.